This morning we are going to be in Philippians. Pastor Dan has been preaching through the Lord's Prayer. We're going to take a break this week and finish out chapter 3 of Philippians. So our text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 12, into chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. In 1954, the United Kingdom held the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. Imagine a smaller version of the Olympics. And the most anticipated event was the 1,600-meter race, or in America, we call that the mile. This is because two of the runners... Roger Bannister of England and John Landy, not Tom Landry, but John Landy of Australia were the only two men in the world that could run a mile in under four minutes. And on August 7th, 1954, they faced off to finally settle who could run the fastest mile. They approached the starting line with multiple other runners who were only known by their mothers because the whole world only cares about Bannister and Landy. And with a bang, the runners are off. Landy, the Australian, takes the lead by the second corner with Bannister hot on his heels. The pack of fellow runners are far behind by the middle of the second lap with Landy, the Australian, still in the lead. But what does he do? He peeks back. He looks over his left shoulder, 
just to check on Bannister's position to see how close is the Brit to my heels. This is an almost fatal move. Despite Landy's glance back, he maintains his lead, but now it's much less comfortable with Bannister matching him step for step. You can actually watch this on YouTube, and they are like feet apart. It's like they're on a tandem bicycle, right foot, left foot, right foot, right on each other. And now they go into the final and fourth lap. The pace now speeds up. The boys are flying on the track, and the announcer is shouting, and the crowd is roaring between their breathing and the pounding of their hearts and the deafening crowd. They couldn't hear anything, let alone the footfalls of those behind them, which apparently got to Landy again. And so on the last corner of the last lap, Landy looks over his left shoulder again. And this time, when he looks over his left shoulder, Bannister passes him on his right. And by the time Landy looks forward again, he's looking at the back of Bannister's head. He has taken his eyes off of the prize, and Bannister is striving. He's pumping his arms, he's straining, he's pushing off on his toes, and he takes the win, collapsing into the arms of the one waiting for him at the finish line. Forgetting what lied behind, or better yet, who lied behind, he strained toward the goal and finished the race, giving it everything he had. Friends, this race is known as the Miracle Mile, illustrates the mind and the life that the text this morning calls us to. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If we're honest, we tend to be like Landy, we tend to look back at what we've done. Maybe in our walk in Christ, we look back at what we've accomplished. We look back and we're drawn to what we've been called out of. We look back at whatever the world says is good and worth pursuing. We look back and we are distracted from the race at hand. But the text this morning calls us to hold on to the truth that he has made us his and to forget our distractions as we strive to see our Savior. That's the main point. Hold on to the truth that he has made you his, and forget distractions as you strive to see your Savior. As we work through the text, we're going to break it into two main sections. First, in verses 12 to 16, our strenuous pursuit of the Savior. And then verses 14 to the end, our careful imitation of the saints. Our strenuous pursuit of the Savior and our careful imitation of the saints. So let's jump in and see our strenuous pursuit of the Savior. Let's start back with verses 12 to 14. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you really break these verses down, Paul is just saying one thing in two different ways. 
He is just saying, I'm not there yet, but I press on. That's his gist. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And verse 13, I don't consider that I've made it my own. So he's saying, I have not made it. But verse 12, but I press on. Verse 14, I press on. He's saying, I'm not there yet, but I press on. Paul is showing us that the Christian life is one of pressing on, a strenuous pursuit as we continue to go. But we have two what's to answer to kind of fill out what's this pressing on look like? We can say press on all day, but that doesn't help us do it or know what it looks like. So two what's for our strenuous pursuit. First, what does this pursuit look like? And second, what do we pursue? So let's explore those two questions. First, what's the pursuit look like? Well, look at the text again. He uses two different illustrations in each of the parallel statements. So one in verse 12, and then one in verses 13 and 14. First in verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. That may not sound like an illustration, but to Paul and his readers, it was an illustration. It's a military term from Paul in the days before him of literally apprehending. It's the King James Version. It's a beautiful translation of that, of that verse. It's to apprehend. It's an army that's running after another army to seize them, to take control, to lay hold of. It's a picture of an army pursuing another. A place that it's not used, but maybe a, a helpful illustration, is David and Goliath. Right? So after David kills Goliath, and he cuts off his head. Are the Philistines ready to fight? No, not at all. They're like, you just killed our big guy with this little guy. So they take off for the hills. They start running, and what does Israel do? They take after him. They pursue them to lay hold of them, to apprehend them. That is what this ver- this is, that's what this word describes. It's a picture to help us imagine here in Philippians, I press on to apprehend, to, to make it my own. The pursuit is that one of an army running with everything they have to overtake the enemy, to seize them and to apprehend them. So that's the first aspect of our pursuit. It's to run and to apprehend, to gain, to attain. Secondly, we see the illustration of verse 13. It's that of a runner, which we talked about with Landy and Bannister. Right? The text says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. The one thing he does is press on. That's, that's what he's wanting you to see. But how he does it is by forgetting what's behind him and by focusing on what's before him. It's, it's straining like Bannister, not like Landy. Remember how Landy kept looking over his shoulder. He did it twice. Apparently he did not learn from his first mistake. It's not looking over your shoulder. It's focusing forward. Because when we look back, we get off our rhythm, we get off course, and we slow our pace. The question is, however, what do we forget? Because a lot of the New Testament says remember. A lot of the whole Bible says Remember, remember, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remind them of these things. Remember the love you had for me, right? The Bible's always saying, remember. So how do we, what do we forget and what do we remember? 
Well, Titus 3, I think, is the best text to remind us of what we remember. And it's long, but it is so worth reading. I'm going to read Titus 3, verses 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 3, 4, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we remember. We remember that you were once alienated from God by your sin. You remember that you are unworthy. We are unworthy of grace and mercy. We remember that it, it was God, not you, that saved you. Remember that it's not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy that you were saved. We remember these things. We don't forget that. What we forget is what distracts us from these truths. We forget what makes us become complacent when we reflect on these truths. Jesus shows us in Luke 9 the cost of following him. He has three men who want to follow him. And the last one says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The man could not forget what lied behind. Instead of focusing on the one who is there to save him, he looked back. Later in Luke, Jesus will mention Lot's wife. And she looked back at Sodom. She wanted one more glance of the slavery and evil that God had just redeemed her out of. These are the things we don't look back to. These are the things that distract our heart from the truths of the salvation we have in Christ. Don't look back at the sin that used to entice you. Don't be like the Israelites who are freshly redeemed on the wings of eagles from Egypt and want to go back to the mud and the muck where their masters slaughtered their children and threw them in the Nile. We have a tendency when we look back to put on rose-colored glasses and to forget the truth of the sin we were entangled in. Don't look back. Look forward to the Savior who has redeemed you. So that's what can distract us. But when we look back, we can also become not just distracted, but complacent. When we look back, we can think, I prayed the prayer. I'm good. I raised my family in church. My kids are doing great. I taught that one class. I've done this. I've done that. And these are spiritual things that we've done in Christ. But we look back, and now we're running backwards because we're thinking, that's the good old days. Our nostalgia makes us become complacent and not looking forward 
for the prize to come. We look at dusty trophies in our past behind us. Friends, are you looking back distracted and slowing down? Do you find yourself reminiscing or do you find yourself straining forward? Because that's where the illustration goes. We forget what lies behind and we strain forward. We strain forward, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward. We don't look back. We're like banister when we're running and we're digging and we're just flying, stretching with everything out to get to the prize, the goal, which is our second what. How do we do it? What's it look like? But why are we straining? What are we running to? Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is that prize? Well, Paul has been talking at length about this all through chapter 3, and he's really excited to share it with you. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says that by any means possible, anything, no matter what it takes, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the prize in this text right here. But it's not the prize that he's like, I want that. He's like, I want that. what that gets me to. The resurrection is a means to the ultimate prize. See, the resurrection, it leads to the complete restoration of all things. Where Paul says that he's not already perfect in verse 12, the resurrection leads to perfection. Not, not simply moral perfection, but the end to which all things were created. The, how all things were created good, they actually are good again. We don't have the brokenness in the world around us. It is made for what it was always supposed to be. That's what Romans 8 is hitting on. When all creation, and even we ourselves, are groaning for the restoration of all things that come through the resurrection. For it's on that day that there is no more pain. There is no more backaches and migraines and chronic pain. There's no more failing bodies. It's on that day that there's no more goodbyes. You don't have to say goodbye because someone you love just moved. You don't have to say goodbye because your relationship just got broken because of sin or heartache. You don't have to say goodbye because death just took someone else that you love. There's no more goodbyes. There's no more cancer. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. The coffin industry is out of business. Not only this, but there will be perfect, perfect peace and justice and equity. See, the kingdoms that David and Solomon established where David's um, distributing justice and equity in the kingdom and Solomon has peace as he has built the temple and God's presence is with God's people again, they are just a glimpse of that day, of that kingdom to come. There will be perfect peace as the prince of peace reigns over all things. That is the promised land. That is what we look to. That is what we run to. That is our home. 
It's just what we just sang. The promised land is calling. We're almost home. No tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. That is our heart's song. No turning back. We're almost home. And ultimately, ultimately, that home is not a home without a certain person, our true prize. See, as Pastor Dan quoted C.S. Lewis last week, he's talking about blessings that come down, and they're like the rays that come from the sun. And that we should, not, we should not worship these rays, but we should run back up them to the sun, to the source of all these good things. We should run back up to the sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N, because he is the prize. He is the true prize. That which we strive after is our Savior. Multiple times in this letter, this is what Paul has been hammering out. In chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In 123, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in verse 10 and 11, why does, why, does, why does he want to be found in Christ? That I may know him. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and attain the resurrection. Friends, the prize is not a what, it is a who. Our prize is not a purse of money, but a person of surpassing worth. He is the one who, out of his obedience to the Father and love for us, he emptied himself, and he subjected himself to the pains and the sufferings and the struggles by putting on the form of man. He is the one who humbled himself to become obedient. He lived the life that we can't in full obedience to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross where he paid the penalty for the life that we do not live, all the while saying, Father, forgive them. He is the one who rose victoriously from the grave, defeating sin, death, and Satan once and for all. He is the one who will wipe away every tear. He is the one who says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. He is the one standing at the goal, standing at the finish line, not to be earned, but with outstretched arms saying, come home. He is the one, like Bannister who's flying, soaring down the last hundred meters, collapsing into the arms of the one waiting for him. He is the one that's standing there and saying, come to me, collapse in my arms. You are home with me. He is our prize. Dig in, friends. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward all the way to the end into the arms of your prize, Jesus Christ himself. And now I want to pause and speak to two people in light of that. In light of our call to forget what's behind and to strain to this beautiful, glorious prize of Jesus Christ, there's two people that I want to speak to. First, 
to you who are not in Christ, I do want to ask you, what is your hope? What are you running to? And what is your prize? Because right now, here in Advent, this is what we're celebrating, is that we have a hope and that we have a person who has come and that's going to come again. And we have a prize because he will advent again. We are running to this truth that God did not leave us in darkness where we once walked, but he has emptied, his, he has emptied himself, putting on the form of man, obeying the Father, dying for us, rising so that we can live in newness of life with him. That is our hope. What is your hope? Friends, by grace, through faith in him, you can be a child of God and share in this hope and have this prize. Does your heart long for this Savior? Does your heart long for the restoration that he has started and will bring the consummation? Then receive him by grace through faith and repentance. The second person is you, brother or sister, who are weary. The hundred meters keeps stretching, and your legs are burning, and your heart is heavy, and you feel like you can't get another breath. Hear me. The call to press on is not a call to do better. It's not a call to figure it out. Jesus isn't the coach on the sidelines saying, come on, figure it out, let's go. It's not a call to earn something. It's not a call to get yourself to the finish line. Look at verse 12. I press on to apprehend, to make it my own, because, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has seized you. He has laid hold of you, and he has made you his. Look at verse 16. This is how we press on. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Friends, the call to press on is a call to hold on. To hold on to the truth that Christ has already made you his. Hold on to him and all of his promises that you are justified in Christ alone. That you've been made a child of God by Christ alone. That your old self has been put to death and you have been, you have been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ alone. That you are free from the dominion of sin in Christ alone. That you have been given a new heart that loves him and longs for him. As you hold on to these truths, may your heart be renewed. Because what you're doing is you're forgetting what lies behind. And you're holding on to the prize that is before you. You're holding on to the truth that he has attained this. And he is calling you home. When you are weary, sing. With every breath I long to follow Jesus. Not I'm figuring it out. Not that I know how to do this. Not that I'm doing it. I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know that he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Friends, press on by holding on to the one that holds on to you. And so that, the strenuous pursuit, 
That is what it looks like. A strenuous pursuit for our Savior is not looking back. It's not reflecting on what we have worked out or what we have been called out of. It's straining forward for the true prize, our Savior waiting for us, saying, come home. It's not a prize that we earn. It's a prize that we already have in him. We run to lay hold of him who has already laid hold of us. So now we have one more question. How? How do we do this? How do we really in the nitty gritty, how do we do this? Well, the text thankfully gives us an answer. Our careful imitation of the saints. So let's start back in verse 17 and read to the end of our passage. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and, their, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We'll stop there for now. So Paul transitions out of this call for us to press on, out of this call for our strenuous pursuit, and he helps us see how we do this. He gives us two commands in verse 17. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The point is, this is not a one-man race. You're not running alone. We have fellow believers, past and present, to look to and to follow as they follow Christ. Because note, he doesn't just say imitate me, but includes those who walk according to the example you have in us. So this is not a one-man race. We press on by being with and by following one another as we follow Jesus the text shows us the importance of this in making sure that we follow the right people by giving us two examples. He's going to show us first those who we should follow and those who we should not follow. So let's look at the first one. Who should we follow? Well, Paul says, imitate me. It's a pretty good example to follow. And those, other, and those which means it's other people that walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is writing, who's the us? I think we can understand who the other people are, but who's the us? The us must be Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. In this book, in this letter, Paul has been giving us examples. The ultimate example is Christ. And in that, he's given us three other examples so far that are following Christ that we ought to follow. Himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So he's saying... Just like me, just like Paul, rejoice even in chains as others, as others preach from envy and strife. 
Just like Paul, who set their desire aside to see brothers and sisters to grow in their faith. Just like Timothy, who are genuinely concerned about the welfare of other believers. Or like Timothy, who has proven worth in the service of the gospel. Or like Epaphroditus, who was willing to give his life for the service of a brother or a sister in the faith for the glory of Christ. Or again, like Paul, who's willing to give up his best helpers. He sent Epaphroditus. He is going to send Timothy, willing to give up the best helpers in the local body for the sake of other believers in the expanse of the gospel. Like Paul, who forgot what lied behind and strained forward to the light ahead and pressed on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the examples that the us that we ought to follow, and that as we look for who should we follow, it's people who live like that. People who have lives that are marked by this kind of rejoicing in trial and setting aside desires and thinking for others, not just their own, and who are sacrificing their lives and their goods and everything they have for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Those are the examples that we are to follow. And that's what Paul is explaining as well to be a mark of spiritual maturity. I think that's interesting. It's it's kind of a side note. Spiritual maturity is not an age. It's not an ability to engage a certain worldview or to have certain numbers of things memorized or to be able to do this kind of evangelism. Spiritual maturity is, as the text explains in verse 15, it's running the race as Paul does. It is joyfully and fervently following Jesus no matter the cost and being focused on him as the reward. So that is the example that we should strive to. That is the mark of maturity that we should follow. Those are the examples we follow as we seek to press on. We run this race together, following one another as we follow Jesus. And we have two main applications from this text right here. First, read Christian biography and autobiography. Or if you're technologically savvy, listen to podcasts about church history and church biography. We have 2,000 years of brothers and sisters who have gone before us and have lived and died for Christ. If you want a recommendation, come to me, but read. Read Christian biography. Look to the saints of past and be encouraged to follow as they have followed Christ. Second, This is probably the clearest application. Community matters immensely. The saints we need to carefully imitate are not just just those from the past. They're in the pews beside you. We need one another. It's not if it works in my schedule or if I can make it fit or if we live close enough together or whatever it is. We need one another. We need one another to run this race together. And we need one another for more than just an hour on Sunday mornings. We need to be in each other's lives. We need to hear one another's struggles. We need to encourage one another when we're in trials. We need to remind one another of the gospel. We need to serve and love one another. And so, friends, this happens. This happens one place is in small groups. This happens over coffee and meals. This happens in each other's homes even when you don't have the house picked up. 
You don't have to clean to have community. Actually, have them over and have them help you clean. That's a great way to get some chores done and to bond while you work together. But friends, we need community. We need to be part of the local body and we need to be active in the local body. Not being in community like this is not enjoying one of the blessings we have in Christ. He has brought us together and made us blood, blood brothers and sisters. So we don't enjoy one of his blessings and we hinder our ability to run after him and to press on. We must run this race together. It's actually where my illustration breaks down, which is a good thing. It's not Landry against Bannister. It's Land, I said Landry. It's Landy encouraging Bannister, saying, run faster. And it's Bannister saying, come on. That's what community is. That's what we need. And so we follow Christ as we follow others who follow him by being in community with one another. So that's who we do follow. But Paul's going to show us who we don't follow. Starting in verse 18, he begins to describe those we should not follow. He says, For many of whom, for many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These are people that slow our stride for Jesus. They distract us from the race at hand as they are distracted themselves. Their prize is not Christ, but themselves. They don't seek the glory of their Savior that has laid hold of them. Instead, they seek that which they think they can lay hold of themselves. They set their minds on that which is broken and passing away, not the ultimate prize, which is a restored creation with Christ. They distract us. And Paul goes on to show why we do not follow these people, explaining that it's because living in such a way distracts us from what Christ has already made us, which is citizens of heaven. This is a really big deal to say to the Philippians, a Roman province where you have a bunch of retired military generals and just servicemen living in which you're actually kind of a partial citizen of Rome, which is a really big deal in the period. And he's saying, yeah, you're actually a citizen of heaven. Your savior, which Rome would tell, they would say Caesar is savior. Your savior is Jesus Christ. And your home, your nation is heaven. Those who look to, the, to Caesar as savior and this home as home distract you from seeing who the real savior is and where your real home lies. That applies today very easily. We can become so distracted with systems or political nations or politicians that we can think that this is our home too much. We can think that they are our savior, not Jesus. But we are citizens of heaven. Look at verse 20 and read it, what he says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. Again, Christ has laid hold of you. You don't belong to this world. You belong to him and his kingdom. The text says we are not ultimately citizens of an earthly nation. Our Savior is not a political leader or a system, but it is the King who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Christ Jesus. So we do not follow those who look to the world for their pleasure, for their home, or their salvation. We follow those who, with us, look to Christ as the prize, restoration as our home, and Jesus as our Savior. That is who we follow. Now something I do want to note about this following and not following, sometimes because we live in a world that's so polarized and so quick to draw lines and have camps against this camp, what does, how does Paul write about these people? You say he hates them? He wants them to go away and never talk again? He says he weeps for them. He says he writes with tears in the ESV. Again, I think King James gets this one really well. He writes this weeping. He is weeping as he reflects on this. Because those living as enemies of the cross, they don't need to be reviled. They do not need to be shouted at to wake up. They don't need to be just written off as sinners that are stuck in their ways. No, they should be wept over. We should weep for them, for their end is destruction. The hope we have is absent. The joy we have when we think about the home to come and the Savior that we're running to is absent. Whatever they look to, whatever their prize is, it's fleeting. In a world of polarization and hateful speech, degrading and alienating labels, we should weep over and we should be gentle toward those not in Christ in hopes that God may grant them repentance and they may escape the snare of the devil. We should weep for those who we do not follow. The result of following these folks is that we lose sight. We lose sight of our true prize. We lose sight of our identity. We look back to that which distracts us from our true prize. So friends, who are you following? Who are you following as you run this race? Those who encourage us to run, who hold us up as we run together and say, come on, we can do this. Or those who call you away from your Savior to working for your own righteousness, like the Judaizers earlier in chapter 3, or those who call you to live for yourself and make yourself God. Who we follow shapes how we run. So who are you following as you run this race? As we close, brothers and sisters, I, I have one exhortation for you, and it's where Paul ends. Stand firm. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Again, it might seem contrary to strive for our Savior, but it's not. Just like how we press on when we hold on to Christ and his promises, stand firm in Christ. 
in knowing that he has apprehended you. He has laid hold of you. He will never let you go. He has made you a citizen of heaven. He has effected, he has made it possible and made it true and made it irrevocable, the upward call of God. He is your savior and your prize. Stand firm in Jesus. And he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him, even to subject all things to himself. Stand firm in these truths. Remain resolute to the prize, Christ Jesus, so that you can run the race, not on your own, but through Christ in you. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we give you thanks as we are in wonder of your mercy in the Advent season, that you sacrificed your own son to accomplish your will and to redeem your people. May we reflect during this season as we ought, recognizing the ugliness of our sin and the beauty of our Savior. Father, may we grow in our love of him as we contemplate his coming his living, his dying, his being raised, and his ascending to reign over us now and forevermore. May our hearts be encouraged by every aspect of the gospel, and may our hearts be renewed by the truths and promises of our Savior. May we see him as the prize calling us home and carrying us all the way. Lord, may we hold to the fact that our sin is defeated, our chains cannot hold us back, and our hope is in Christ Jesus alone. May we run the race you have set before us, standing firm in these truths, and say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen.